as you're being seated, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn, turn to 2 Corinthians in the New Testament chapter 5. We're continuing in our sermon series entitled Questions Worth Asking. And of course, any answers that we perhaps have comes from the scriptures of the church, comes from 2,000 years of Christian reflection on those scriptures, the great creeds and councils of the church, the great confessions of faith produced by the church, such as the Methodist Articles of Religion. These are the resources we use to try to answer questions, those questions particularly that are worth asking. This morning, the question before us is what happens what happens when we die. And particularly the New Testament has a lot to say on this topic. As does Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'll begin reading at the first verse. For we know, Paul says, for we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, for in this tent we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. If indeed, when we have taken it off, we will not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan under our burden because we wish not to be unclothed, but to be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So, Paul says, we are always confident. Even though we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we, we do have confidence, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make our aim to please Him. For all of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may receive recompense for what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. This is the Word of God. Would you pray with me? God, we pray that during this time, we may hear your voice. By your grace, stir up within each one of us a desire to follow you, to follow your will. Nothing else, nothing less, nothing besides. May this time that we spend together around your word, O oh God, truly be an encounter with you and with Jesus Christ, the living Word. In His name we pray. Amen. I suspect that it's an honest statement that for most humans, perhaps the whole human race, we have a lover's quarrel with this world. There's much that we love about this world. We love the beauty of nature. We love the beauty of human relationships when done well. But 
we also see things in the world around us which we hate. We hate it when nature turns against us and, and becomes a force for destruction and death. We hate it when we see human beings treat one another in a way that exemplifies humanity's inhumanity to each other. So we have a lover's quarrel with this world. We have a love-hate relationship with this world. And Christian theologians over the centuries have said that perhaps that is because we are created for another world. We are created for another place. We have some desires deep within each one of us that cannot be fulfilled in, in this world. So those desires in some ways point to the fact that we, we have been created for another world. The book of Ecclesiastes says that eternity is in the human breast. We were created not primarily for this world, but for the world to come. And that, that yearning that we have that cannot be satisfied in this world is an illustration that we have been created for another world. Sometimes the yearning that we have for a different reality is part of the homesickness that we have for heaven. This world is not our home. We're passing through. We have a true home on the other side. It probably doesn't surprise you that I believe firmly in heaven. The Christian community from the beginning has been a community almost obsessed with the life hereafter. The Bible, particularly the Christian Testament, the New Testament, says a lot to us about the world to come. Church history for the last 2,000 years has been filled with people who have sought to say a great deal to us about the world to come. Richard Baxter's The Saint's Everlasting Rest is a great work from the 18th century. They can help us learn more about this place we call home. If we look over human history in general, we see that the vast majority of humans throughout all the ages have had some sense that there's something beyond this world. And I'm not, I'm not arrogant enough or enough of an intellectual snob to look at the Bible, to look at 2,000 years of Christian tradition, to look at the vast majority of humans throughout our history and to say that with modern skepticism that heaven does not exist. We Christians have a New Testament that is filled with promises about heaven, particularly when you compare it to the Old Testament. There are glimpses and hints of eternal life in the Old Testament, but when we turn to the New Testament, the Christian Testament, it really does almost seem as if promises about the world to come roll over each other like a torrential waterfall. Obviously, the Bible does not tell us everything about the world to come, but the Bible certainly tells us more than is enough 
about the world to come. If the Bible told us everything about the world to come, life in this world would even become more unbearable. If the Bible told us about everything concerning eternal life, which is everlasting life, it would become even more difficult, and we would even feel less at home in this world. But the Bible tells us enough to help us know that the heart's true home is in another place. Paul talks about eternal life, everlasting life, what happens to us at death, particularly in this text in 2 Corinthians. Notice the text again. Paul, the tent maker, is using the image of a tent. He refers to these bodies that we have now as tents. He says, for we know, and pay attention to his words of certainty, for we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, but eternal in the heavens. So he's comparing this body to a tent, and he's talking about our bodies in the world to come will be far more substantial, will be far more permanent, will be far more beautiful. They will be a building, a house not made with hands, but eternal in the heavens. You heard Paul say that while we're in this tent, while we're in this body, we groan. He says, for in this tent we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. Verse 4, for while we are still in this tent, we groan under our burden. We groan under our burden because we wish not to be unclothed, but to be further clothed. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He's saying that we will be further clothed, not less clothed, but further clothed, further embodied in the world to come when we exchange this tent for a more permanent dwelling. In verse 5, he says the gift of the Spirit dwelling in each one of us now as Christ followers is a guarantee that this life will grow and grow and issue forth into eternal or everlasting life. But then at verse 6, he begins to focus a little more on what it is that happens to us at the point of death. Verse 6, he says, So we are always confident, another word of certainty, for we are always confident even though we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, which is why we walk by faith, not by sight. He says, Yes, we do have confidence, another word of certainty, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So he says twice here that the option before us is to be at home in this body, which is away from the Lord, or to be away from this body, which is to be at home with the Lord. Those are the two options. We're either in this body or we're in the body to come. We're either in this life or we're more fully with the Lord and the Lord to come. You notice in Paul's way of thinking, there's no, there's no lapse between the time we're in this body and the time we receive our new body. We're either at home in the body, or we're absent from the body and present with the Lord. It's as if he's remembering what Jesus said to the thief on the cross. Remember when that thief professed faith in King Jesus. And that thief said, remember me, Jesus, King Jesus, when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, this day, this very day, you will be with me in paradise. 
And paradise is a Persian word that the Jewish people borrowed. It literally means a garden, a beautiful garden. And that's why the word paradise came to mean the life that we inherit when we leave this body and inherit the world to come. This day, Jesus said, not at some point in the future, but this day, you will be with me in paradise. So we see from Jesus, Paul, the New Testament, that our options are to be present um, in this body or to be present with the Lord in the life to come. There's no lapse as soon as we take our last breath here in some remarkable bliss-filled, joyful way, those who die in Christ will wake up immediately in the presence of Christ. And that's why Paul says, as he's meditating on this, he says, this is the reason we make our aim, he says in the text, to please God. Because we know that one day we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He will allow us into new life as a gift, the gift of eternal life, but we will have to answer for what we did with our life in this age. And that's where we get language about recompense or rewards in the New Testament. We don't know a lot about what those rewards will be, but we need to be careful not define those rewards like we would define our earthly rewards. I, I don't think that the rewards that are promised us on the other side will look anything like winning the lottery. God's sense of reward is different from this world's sense of reward. So here's Paul painting a picture of what happens at death. You know, it's really important that we search the Scriptures and that we pay attention to what the Scriptures say to us, and we use the best of Christian history and tradition to reflect upon the Scriptures. But it's important that we know the Scriptures, we know how to search the Scriptures. I heard a story years ago about there was a funeral, and as often happens, uh, one of the family members was to read one of the texts for the funeral. And the text that the family member was supposed to read was this text before us this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 and following. And by the way, in England it is referred to as 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, 1 and following. This, this text was to be the text this person was to read at the family member's funeral, and this person who was to read made a slight error. Instead of reading 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through following, this person read 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through following. One through one, verse 1, chapter 5, one, 1 and following, and he read the text. And if you know 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it's very different. This person stood up in his relative's funeral, began to read the text, and it says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not found even among the pagans, for a man is living with his father's wife. Well, that got everybody's attention. I hope the people in the room knew that he should have been reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, not 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We need to know the Bible well enough to be able to search the Scriptures and to hear what the Scriptures are saying to us, such in, as in this text before us from Paul. We need to understand that when we look at the historic Orthodox faith, we are quick to say that we don't receive everything that God has for us at the moment of death. We don't receive everything. We enter into a, a fuller expression of God's presence. We receive joy. We receive bliss. But 
we have always called heaven where we go to at the moment of death. We've always called heaven in Christian theology as the intermediate state. That's why in Christian uh, history, in our liturgy, oftentimes in the sanctuary at a funeral, we're speaking a lot about our loved one being in the presence of God. But then when we go to the columbarium or the graveside, we start talking about the general resurrection of the dead. We start talking about the resurrection of the body. Well, which is it? We go immediately into the presence of God spiritually or we await the resurrection of the body at the end of history. And of course, in the Christian community, we answer yes to both. At death, we enter into the fuller presence of God, but that's not everything we're going to get from God. We will go from glory to glory, from joy to joy, and eventually when Christ finishes Christ's work in the world, the kingdom will come. This world will be redeemed. All of the world will be redeemed. Don't diminish the work of Christ. At that point, bodies and souls will be reunited, and we will return to... Uh, a, bar- a paradise-type state, such as what we lost from the Garden of Eden, but it would be far greater than anything we lost from the Garden of Eden because of the work of Jesus Christ. When Jesus finishes his work one day and God's kingdom will come on earth just as it's being fulfilled right now in heaven, it will be far grander than anything we will ever imagine. This is our historic Orthodox conviction. That's why for the last five years in our funeral ceremonies here at Wesley Memorial, if you notice on the back of the bulletin, there's always the same statement of faith that says the very center of the gospel focuses upon the victory over death by God and Jesus Christ. As his followers, we are convinced that we share in that victory over the grave. We affirm that at death, the believer lives in the presence of God, who is an, who is an eternal home. Nothing, not even death, can separate us from the love of God in Christ. So death is, is not the end. Rather, is the beginning of a fuller existence that will be completed in the resurrection of the body. This hope is not based on our worthiness, but on the grace of God. That's the great promise that's before us. As many questions have come in uh, for us to address during this sermon series, there were several questions floating around the topic of the next life, such as, what will we do in the next life? Well, again, the Bible doesn't tell us everything, but the Bible tells us enough. I'm grateful that we will not just sit around strumming a harp for eternity. The Bible is clear that we will be lost in wonder, love, and praise. We will be spending an eternity in the presence of God, which that means that we'll be spending an eternity in the presence of God, adoring and worshiping God. What we do here on Sunday mornings is a rehearsal for the world to come. We will go from glory to glory in the world to come. Occasionally people ask, will we know each other? in the world to come? Historically, we've answered yes to that because we can imagine we'll be more ignorant there than we are here. We will never be omniscient. God is only the one, the only one that's all-knowing. But, you know, when the Bible talks about people will come from east and west, north and south to sit at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that means Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was will be recognizable. Think about the story of the transfiguration. There's Jesus being glorified in the presence of Peter, James, and John. And on either side of Jesus, they recognized 
Somehow, Elijah and Moses, Elijah was still Elijah, Moses was still Moses. Sometimes I'm asked, will we remember our painful past? Will we be aware of our loved ones that are not there with us? I don't believe there'll be anything on the other side that will diminish our joy, diminish our bliss. I believe that there will be an act of cleansing or orientation that somehow will wipe away painful memories when we enter the new world. And over the years, I've been asked quite a bit about animals. Will there be animals on the other side? And I've, I've said for decades, I, decades, I'm convinced there will be because of the massive nature of the redeeming, delivering work of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ finishes his work, all of creation will be renewed. When the prophet Isaiah talks about the kingdom, and he says that the wolf will lie down with the lamb, well, if the wolf's going to lie down with the lamb, I know my dog Samson is probably going to be there. I'm almost more convinced about my dogs than I am about most human beings that I encounter. God's work in Jesus Christ is so broad that all of creation will be redeemed when heaven comes to earth and the kingdom is fulfilled. I'm not afraid to die. Now, I am afraid of what I may have to go through to get to the point of death. I really had a bummer Sunday last week while you were here worshiping. I, I was um, living with a stomach virus, and that makes preaching real difficult. And my wife will tell you, anytime I'm sick, I am a royal wimp. You know, I don't suffer well. I don't, I'm not a good patient. So I, I'm concerned about what I will have to go through but I'm not concerned about stepping on the other side because we have it on, on good authority, God's authority. A God who cannot lie as to what the world to come is all about. In a few moments, we're going to profess our faith again using one of our historic creeds. And you notice we profess that we believe in life everlasting. Every human being will live forever. So the question becomes... Will we live in the presence of Christ in this world and then live in the presence of Christ in the world to come? Or will we live separated from God in this world and live perhaps in the world to come separated from God? That is the choice that's presented to the human race. Do we want to transition to, to the other side knowing the one who is on the other side in relationship with the one who calls us forth? Or do we want to be a stranger to him here and be a stranger to him on the other side? My friends, as a pastor, one of the historic roles of, the, of a pastor is to help the flock die well. I hope that we all live in faith, live in grace, and then die in faith and die in grace. Amen.